Uh, we are going to do things slightly differently this morning. Uh, rest of all, we will end up uh, in Luke's Gospel, going to be in Luke 11, a bit of Luke 12 uh, today. But first of all, um, I want to make just a few comments about David Cameron's recent remarks that the United Kingdom is a Christian country. Just out of interest, uh, how many of you have seen the coverage of this in the media over the last month? Okay, uh, the vast majority of people uh, in the room. Uh, in the build-up to Easter, uh, writing for the Church Times, uh, not a publication I tend to read, uh, the Prime Minister said that British people should be more confident about our status as a Christian country. Uh, This was like red rag to a bull. Uh, In response, 50 prominent individuals, including authors and broadcasters and comedians and scientists, all all the usual suspects, they added their names to this open letter that was published in the Daily Telegraph, which argued that the UK was largely a non-religious society. Now, straight off the back of this, two conservative ministers have backed up the Prime Minister, arguing that those who deny the UK is a Christian country are deluding themselves. Uh, The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, uh, he has dived into the defence of David Cameron. Uh, He says that we are founded on the Christian faith as a nation. What we are, what we care for, how we act is very much earthed in Christianity. Whereas Rowan Williams, uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, said, no, 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 actually we are a post-Christian nation. Yeah, culture is still to uh, some extent shaped and influenced by Christianity, but it's not now a nation of practicing Christians, a view that uh, I'd be uh, quite in agreement with. Now, I don't know what you make of all of this, but I think there are, in all of this, two very strong forces, two very strong influences at play in this argument about the relationship between Christianity and culture. Here they are. Here's the first one. The first one is this whole idea of relativity. What's relativity? You may well be thinking. Uh, Relativity is this idea that no one truth fits on all people everywhere. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Now, uh, I wish I could spend the the, the whole morning on this. I mean, there's so much to say. Uh, But in in short, this is a very, 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 very silly idea. Like the moment you say that no one religion or belief system can have the truth, you are claiming that you have the knowledge that you say no one can have. You alone, as the relativist, you are the one who sees ultimate reality. You alone can see how the entire universe works. You're claiming the very thing that you're calling Christians and Jews and Muslims arrogant bigots for. You think about it, it's ridiculous. I mean, you can't say there is no truth, because that would have to be true, wouldn't it? I mean, it makes no logical sense. The other force that I think is kind of behind the scenes fueling this whole argument is darker than relativity will ever be. You've got relativity pushing and pulling on one side, and then over here you've got religion pushing and pulling. Are you thinking, did you just say religion is darker than relativity? Absolutely it is. It gives millions and millions of people 
a false view of God. It's like it injects them, it inoculates them against ever tasting and seeing and experiencing the real thing. In the last census, when asked about their religion, 59% of people in England stated that they are Christians. The assumption being that you're Christian either by birth or by behavior, by adherence to a certain moral code, behaving in a certain way. But here's what I contend. The gospel of Jesus Christ and religion are nowhere near the same thing. There are fundamental differences between the teachings of Jesus and how religion works itself out. If you've got this kind of stock morality, this set way of behaving being imposed on people who don't know and love Jesus for themselves, you end up under the surface with a whole lot of wickedness going on, a whole lot of legalism, and as I want to unpack today, a whole lot of hypocrisy as well. So, if I find myself in a scenario where someone goes, well look, Jonathan, all religions are the same, aren't they? I very quickly go, absolutely right, because what I want to do is distinguish the gospel from religion, because they really are that different. In fact, I want to spend a bit of time just unpacking some of the differences between the gospel and religion. I want to spend a bit of time doing this because I think it sets us up very helpfully for today's passage, which I promise eventually we will get to. Also, just to say, uh, I'm leaning in all of this very heavily uh, on the writing, on the work of uh, a guy called Tim Keller, um, someone called Matt Chandler, uh, and someone else called John Piper. So if you hear anything particularly insightful, for integrity's sake, it probably doesn't come from me. Okay, that being said, some of the main differences between the gospel and religion. Here's the first one. In religion, if there was a mantra, is this, I obey therefore I'm accepted. That's religion. Religion is, there's this code to be followed, there's this morality to ascribe to, there are these things that I have to do, and if I do them, then God will be pleased with me. But if I don't do them, God won't be pleased with me. So I obey, therefore I'm accepted. As long as I do what's right, and on the whole, avoid what's wrong, God will be pleased with me. In a nutshell, that's the mantra, that's the message of religion. Now, the gospel is completely different, because at the center of our faith is Jesus Christ going to the cross and having the just wrath of God against our sin poured out on him. So if the mantra of religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, the mantra of the gospel, the message, the good news of Jesus is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. We don't obey to get accepted, we're justified, we are made right in the sight of God by the cross of Christ, not by any of our actions, and that provides the motivation to then live for him. Several other things too. In religion, You tend to try to obey God to get things from Him. It's like, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, then God will do this, will do this, will do this. I'll obey, and in my obedience, 
God will bless me. It's as though he will owe me. Whereas in the gospel, we obey to be near him. We obey to become more like him. But we don't primarily go to God to get things. We go to God to get God. He's the gospel. He's the good news. He's the treasure that we run to and exchange everything else for. In religion, when circumstances go wrong, and they will go wrong, when circumstances go wrong, you're forced to either get angry with God or get angry with yourself. Because the whole religious framework says that the reason difficulties have hit your life is either you didn't measure up to what you were supposed to, and so you're mad at yourself, or you did, but for whatever reason, God has betrayed you and not given you what you deserved. So you end up being mad at God. Whereas in the gospel, when difficult circumstances fall on our lives, we still struggle, but here's what happens in the midst of the struggle. In the struggle, we fully embrace that all of God's wrath for us was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And although, for whatever reason, we may never understand the reason, he's still allowed this thing into our life. This is in no way about his anger towards us or our perceived failure. And although it's hard... Although we may never work through the complexity and the perplexity of it all, he will walk through it with us like a loving father. Difference number four. In religion, when you're criticized, what tends to happen is your whole world will unravel and you'll end up either beating up the other person who's criticized you or beating yourself up. Because in religion, your whole self-worth is built around your ability to do right and be a good person. So if someone dares to criticize you and point out that in one aspect of your life you're not such a good person, suddenly your framework for acceptability in front of God collapses around you. In the gospel, when you're criticized, in all probability you will still struggle. I mean, I've never met a guy yet who just loves criticism. I mean, bring it on. Not met that person. In fact, 35, 36 years into my relationship with Christ, I still, I'm ashamed to say, tend to default to the same place. Someone goes to me, Jonathan, uh, I think this could be an issue for you. Uh, I hope you don't mind me saying, but I've seen this in your life. I tend to respond like this, inwardly at least, Oh, that's funny. Because while you were noticing some stuff, I was also noticing some things. So, since this is the kind of friendship you think we have, let me point out some things too. If, if you feel able to just kind of highlight the speck in my eye, here's the log in yours! And then later on, in the cold light of day, I'll kind of be reflecting on it and think, Maybe there was a grain of truth in what they said, and uh, I'll repent. But that's always my default position, to justify myself, to defend myself, to fight back. But really, when you're criticized in the gospel, you still struggle. But here's the thing. 
Ultimately, your worth as believers in Christ is never been in your ability to be moral, upright, fine, outstanding citizens. It's never been that. And so when you're criticized, it doesn't unravel your whole world. In fact, if you think about it, it was probably criticism or something like that that brought you to the cross in the first place. It was the fact that you knew you failed in an area. You knew you needed a saviour. You knew you had a sinful heart. You realised you couldn't do it by yourself and you needed God. Those are some of the things that brought you to the cross of Christ. Difference number five. There are only six, in case you're wondering. In religion, and then we'll get into the, this is just the introduction. Okay, difference number five. In religion, your self-worth is built entirely on how hard you work and how good you are. And so what tends to happen is you can't help but look with a great deal of disdain at those who don't work as hard as you or those who you think are more immoral than you. Whereas in the gospel, you know you've been saved by grace through faith. And even the faith to believe in that grace was given to you by God. So you have no grounds to boast in anything. Listen, if you really get grace, if you really get that you didn't need to do anything, that God justified you, that he saved you, it becomes nearly impossible to judge anyone else. You might not agree with them, but you can't judge them. Because by doing that, you have negated the very grace that was given to you. In fact, if it wasn't for grace, that would be you. We could go on and on, but we'll just do one more. I think this takes us into where I want us to get today. Difference number six. If you look to your own performance for your spiritual acceptability before God, then you constantly have to wear a mask. And so you pitch up here on a Sunday but you never talk about the fact that this is going on in your life or this is where you're failing right now or these are some of the temptations you're really struggling with or this is where you're frustrated or these are some of the doubts you're grappling with. You just show up and pretend that everything is fine. You avoid letting anyone see any weakness at all costs. And so if you play it out, in the end... Ultimately, you're not after God. You're after some kind of false image of yourself that you want to present or portray to the world. Whereas in the gospel, none of those other things are ultimate. When you build out this idea that you're more moral than everyone else, first of all, you're lying, and secondly, you're taking away from the beauty of the cross. Because the beauty of the cross isn't that you're perfect is that you're not, and Christ loved you anyway. And when you grasp that, it's when worship really rises up inside you. Now I think we're ready to get into the text. Luke chapter 11, I'm going to pick it up in verse 37. While you're finding it, just say, hopefully we're now better equipped 
to distinguish between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of religion. In short, Jesus tends to be for people who are really a mess. He tends to speak softly to them, very gently to them, full of grace towards them. And people get religious and start trying to lay religion on other people, invariably Jesus gets very, very upset. Look at verse 37. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders, invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Now, just to explain, this isn't what you do with your kids before dinner. This isn't about germs or external cleanliness. Like, hold out your hand and the other side. No, no, I, th- I think that's probably all right. No, no, this is a symbolic religious act for them. Verse 39, then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools! Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you'll be clean all over. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you've spent so much time building up this whole kind of religious persona of external perfection that everything's going swimmingly well in your life that you've neglected the state of your heart. And so in the end, you're effectively dead and dry and dirty. It's like you have no concern for other people. You just consume the whole time with yourself. If you just be honest about where you're really at, you would stand a much better chance of being clean, not just on the outside, but inside as well. Let's look at where he goes after that. Verse 42. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees. For you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. Yeah, you should tithe, yeah, but do not neglect the more important things. Here's what he's saying. Externally, on the outside, you've got all the rules sorted. You tithe, you do these religious acts well but you have no real love for people and you have no real love for God. At the end of the day, you've got it completely the wrong way around. Don't hear me wrong, you, you should tithe, you should give, but you should start by loving God and loving people. Let's keep going. Verse 43. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, For you love to sit in the seats of honour in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yeah, what sorrow awaits you? For you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they're stepping on. Just think about this. Does it sound like pretending you're okay when really you're not and spending all of your energy trying to present this false image is what God is really looking for here. 
I don't think you need to be particularly intellectual to see that Jesus is looking at these very, very religious men and saying to them, wake up, you have missed it completely. I love this next part, verse 45. Teacher, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us too in what you just said. In hindsight, they should have just kept quiet, kept a low profile. Here's why I love texts like this. You kind of remember that picture of Jesus that we perhaps grew up with where he's wearing these kind of pristine white robes and it looks like he spent hours and hours blow-drying his hair. (laughs) This is not that Jesus. You know, one of the things that's happened because of the pull of relativism in culture, remember this view that no one has the right to claim absolute truth, that everyone's opinion is equally valid. One of the byproducts of this is that Jesus has been relegated to the role of love fairy. It's as though he just kind of floats around the whole time, sprinkling love on everyone. But here's the thing about genuine love. Genuine love has a ferocity about it. Genuine love engages in places where it hurts at times. So yeah, love wins, but it's holy, it's ferocious, it's truth-filled love. I mean, look at Jesus' response to this so-called religious expert. Verse 46, yes, said Jesus, what sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law? For you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. That's where when Jesus says, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. Yoke is what a rabbi, what a religious teacher would call his teachings. And Jesus is making the point, my teachings are light. My teaching is simple. But he brings this accusation against the religious experts. He says, your job is to teach God's word to people in such a way that they're led to and walk with God. But instead, you've made this thing unbelievably complex. It's going to end badly for you because you put these impossible rules on my people that just crush them the whole time. Verse 47, what sorrow awaits you? For you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel right through to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yet, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law. For you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves and you prevent others from entering. 
He's going, you're an enemy of truth. You don't want the truth. You've studied the scriptures, but you've done it in vain. You think that in them you have life, but all the time you refuse to come to me. And to make matters worse, you burden my people. How do they respond? Verse 53. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. Into chapter 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. Jesus turned first to his disciples and warned them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. There is the word hypocrisy. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. Now, pretty much every time I've heard this particular text taught, it's always this scene, it's always this scenario. One day, you are going to stand in front of God and he is going to turn on his television set. It's going to be HD, 3D, full surround sound. I mean, he's God. He has the very best. And he'll turn it on and every single dark area of your life will play out on that screen while God simultaneously asks that you explain. So this morning, you're driving up Lordswood Road and someone is in front of you going 20 miles an hour and you are trapped behind them. And you're like, you rascal. (laughs) And when you die and you're standing before God, there you are on the screen calling that guy a rascal. And God, infinite in holiness, is going to go, the R word? Really? You want to try and explain this to me? I go and am slaughtered on the cross. And that's the behavior I get from you? Every thought, every action plays out in front of you and God there on that screen. There are some problems with that interpretation. Mainly, that's not what it's saying. The warning here is, beware of hypocrisy. Beware the hypocrisy of the Pharisees whose thoughts, whose heart, whose motivation are wicked. While all the time what they present and what you see is goodness. That's what's going on here. That's what Jesus is going after. Just stay with me. I want to show you a key to avoiding hypocrisy. And we'll draw all of this together. Matthew 18. 
Jesus teaches us how to treat a fellow believer who sins. It's like, together, we've got this responsibility to walk up to one another and go, hey, I've noticed this in your life, and I care about you. I'm not trying to control you, not trying to condemn you, not trying to judge you. My motivation really is one of love for you. I'm just saying, this trajectory you're on, this path I can see you're walking down, it's going to end in destruction. You need to be really careful with that. If you continue to read down in Matthew 18, very last verse, after all of this is done, within this whole context, it's a verse that's very popular, but I think we often take it out of context. It says this, Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Do you see? There's this connection here between living in community with one another, being in a level of relationship with one another where we can freely address things in one another's lives, in love. We can receive in love from one another. We can be accountable to one another. We don't have to walk around wearing these masks, but we can be real with one another. And in the context of that kind of community, in the context of those kind of relationships, Jesus says that he will be tangibly present with us. So here's what I want to throw out to you. The Christian walk, your relationship with God, although it is intensely personal, it was never meant to be private. In fact, that the more private you make your struggles and your walk with Christ, the more you hide behind a mask, the more religious you will become. But the more public you're able to walk in your relationship with Christ, the more open you're able to be with others about what's going on beneath the surface, the more sin loses its power over you and the more Christ becomes present in your life. I'll give you an example. There are mornings where, for no apparent reason, I just wake up irritated. I know you're thinking, surely not. Genuinely, that does happen. The alarm goes off, and I'm irritated and frustrated. Let me tell you exactly how those days that I'm irritated are going to end. I'm going to end up shouting at the kids. I'm not, am I the only one here? Is this some revelation? I mean, you start the day like that, if you don't nip it in the bud, that's how it will play out. You'll end up shouting at the kids, and Helen and I are going to get into a fight over something ridiculous. That's just what will happen. And if I keep that private, Sure enough, I am pretty irritated, pretty frustrated the rest of the day. But if I just make a call to to one of my friends, if I go, "Uh, I I, I don't know what's wrong with me today. Uh, I'm just kind of pretty irritated. I I, I don't know why, but I just feel angry. Uh, 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 And I know someone's going to catch it at home. Uh, I know Helen and I are going to get into a fight about something stupid, like bread or something like that. What does that matter? 
that this isn't who I want to be. This isn't how I want to love my wife. This isn't how I want my walk with the Lord to be. And it's amazing to me that in that moment, when we're not trying to play religious games, we need to be honest with one another, Jesus is present. When we privatize it and make it our own personal struggle because we think we're good enough and we can overcome it in our own strength and we don't want anyone let in to see what we're really like, that becomes religion. And Jesus says here, it's deadly. Absolutely deadly. It's also pretty confusing. I mean, I, I don't know where it came from that we're supposed to be this great, perfect person. I mean, have you ever read the Bible? If you just start from the beginning, we don't get past chapter 3 of Genesis before we blow it. The, the Bible is this massive book, 400 words into it, it goes bad. That sets the tone for the rest of it. Cain murders his brother. Moses kills a guy with his bare hands. David, this man of God, commits adultery, covers it up with a brutal assassination. Jesus is betrayed by one of his own. In fact, every one of his disciples abandons him. From beginning to end, this story is wrought with failure. Samson, Elijah, Peter, Paul, the the essence of the gospel isn't that you're good, but that you're not, and Christ still loves you. I'd suggest the reason why at times we struggle to worship, the reason why at times we're unable to walk in the joy of our salvation is because we haven't really grasped salvation. We've merely got religion. And religion is this devastating, devastating thing. It's like just drawing you up. Because we're trying to accomplish the impossible. We're constantly lying to others and lying to ourselves. When ultimately everything has already been freely given to us. So I just want to give you a few moments to hold the mirror up to your life. To reflect on what's going on, not on the outside, but inside you right now. We just take stock of your life. Luke 12 couldn't be clearer. There are no secrets. Jesus knows. He sees everything. And yet he still goes to the cross. Let's think for a moment about how much energy you burn How much vitality you lose when the goal of your life is just to protect an image, to protect a persona that isn't who you really are. It removes your ability to receive love because what people are loving aren't the real you. It removes your ability for intimacy with anyone. It removes your ability to worship God freely. It just kills you. brokenness and a contrite spirit I will never despise it's what David wrote about God in the Psalms okay so you struggle welcome join the club 
Okay, so you don't feel like you're there yet. Me neither. The difference between religion and the gospel is religion will try to hide it at all cost. The gospel knows that grace paid the bill. So my prayer is that you'd start being more honest about where your heart is, more real about what's going on in your life, that you would drop the mask, let other people in. If you had to look at your life and go, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, or I'm accepted, therefore I obey. If you had to run down that, that list, those six things at the beginning, differences between religion and the gospel. And you really had to lay your life on which side you fall. How many of us this morning need to go, man, I'm so religious. Jesus, my number one priority, my number one concern isn't you. It's more a case of how I'm viewed, what other people think of me. Jesus, please help me.